As many of you know, I grew up in the Chicago area, and in that privileged uh, corner of the Northwest, Martin Luther King Jr. Day was an incontrovertible fact of life. A few days, Rabbi Friedman uh, filled me in on a little bit of the history. Uh, earlier this week, he, he mentioned to me that it actually took a really long time and quite a lot of struggle for the day to become a federal holiday. It took more than 20 years for the bill designating it as such to become law in 1986. And it wasn't even until the year 2000 that every state in the Union finally adopted it. Some states, notably Arizona, vacillated, that's a polite way of saying what really happened, before finally settling on it. Today, some states designate the day to honor various leaders of the Confederacy alongside Dr. King, which I somehow doubt Dr. King would have considered a credit to his legacy. In fact, when I was driving here, I heard on NPR that there's this uh, big rally planned in Richmond, and I can't imagine that it's a coincidence that in the midst of this gun rights rally that's happening on Dr. King's holiday weekend, there are white supremacist factions threatening violence. So I think that just goes to show all of us that at the very least, the work that he set out to do is not yet complete. Please forgive me as I delve into a brief Star Wars metaphor. <laughs> you know me. Do you remember when Han Solo gets frozen? I see some nods. Yeah, Michael's like, yeah, give me the 301 version, Rabbi. Yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> and it's this great scene, right, where, where Leia looks at him and says, I love you, and he says, I know. Turns out that was not scripted. Susan and I recently learned that. Anyway, I'm not getting too far off, off, off tack here. When I, uh, when I tell you that I think that's a really good metaphor, that freezing in carbonite of what we do when we choose an historical figure and that historical figure becomes either a hero or a villain. We freeze them in history in the vein of our narrative preference. The villain we remember for the worst of his deeds or the hero we remember for her best. Inspiring words and deeds gradually become cliches. The picture of a life emerges by way of headlines and sound bites. Like Han Solo in his carbonite brick, they become two-dimensional, no longer fully humid with flaws, errors, controversy. So tonight, I'm actually not especially interested in delving into Dr. King's flaws, although there are recently unsealed files that bring them into focus in a new way. I am actually more interested to consider a feature of Dr. King's late advocacy, his work for justice, that the history books often elide, that I myself did not learn, certainly growing up. Um, and it's one that I think has special resonance in this American moment. And that is his position on the Vietnam War. Dr. King was quietly concerned about American military intervention in Vietnam as early as 1965. But he didn't come out against it forcefully until 1967. In April of that year, he delivered perhaps his most provocative public speech. And it was called Beyond Vietnam. He preached to a group of about 3,000 people at Riverside Church in New York City. I suspect that there are many reasons uh, for his, shall we say, reticence to speak sooner, more publicly. Not the least of which is his intense focus and significant success on domestic civil rights legislation. 
Additionally, he had come to support in those days President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society Social Initiatives. Those are proposals that later became the programs that we know as Medicare, Medicaid, and Head Start preschooling, among other things. But King saw increasing military expenditures gutting these efforts. He also saw the government sending young black men, in his words, 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. After seeing images in a magazine of burned and mangled Vietnamese children, he realized he could not stay silent any longer. For King, American racism, materialism, what he came to view as American imperialism, were interconnected in a destructive web. In his speech, he demanded a halt to American military action and the prompt withdrawal of troops. I think we can only imagine what he would have to say about the specter of a war with Iran and the events of recent weeks in that part of the world. Perhaps his opposition to the Vietnam War strikes us as rather vanilla today. But we forget, I myself forgot, that that speech would have been, in fact, the least popular speech that he ever gave. And he certainly was controversial in his time. Why? It flew completely in the face of public opinion at the time. Mainstream media, including the New York Times, denounced his anti-Vietnam speech as facile slander, remarked the Washington Post. Many who have listened to him with respect will never again accord him the same confidence. The FBI, under J. Edgar Hoover, smeared him with copious lies, including that he was a wholehearted communist. Has anybody ever heard about this before? Because it was pretty new to me. You watched a video about Dr. King? Did you learn anything about him? People were on a boat where he did his well, biggest speech. The, the two people that are on the boat, uh, something and Moby. I think we're going to have to talk about this later because your expertise is far beyond mine. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Brayden. Now, Dr. King had pretty thick skin. You have to have thick skin to be him. So my guess is he was not unused to the sorts of responses that his speech and advocacy engendered. He had been speaking unpopular truth for his entire life. But I sometimes think that we forget that that is really the point about Dr. King. We forget about the depth of pain and conflict that he must have endured, that truth-tellers often must endure. As Rabbi Freeman reminds me sometimes, prophets are never popular. Dr. King suffered and he ultimately died in service of the truths that he preached, truths that would liberate millions. It is the destiny of a prophet to sacrifice reputation, sometimes body, in service of the truth. We read in this week's Torah portion about Moses in his own formative justice experience, growing up to see the pain of slavery all around him. 
He witnesses an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Israelite slave. His heart breaks. He feels compelled to intervene. One Bible commentator remarks on the incident this way. Witnessing an injustice and degradation of another, Moses feels the blow dealt to the other as though it were directed against himself. Breaking through the selfishness of his own ego, he discovers his neighbor. It is this discovery that, in the last resort, brings about the exodus. Moses, with some significant help, could bring about the exodus. It is hard for us not to wonder tonight, as we prepare to honor Dr. King's legacy, what more Dr. King could have done. The lesson, though, is not really about Dr. King, or indeed about any other person. It's about how change happens, how we understand the past, how we repurpose memories to serve agendas and to create new stories, what we do to freeze in carbonite the things that we find palatable, tolerable, and that we make inspiring. But the real lesson, I think, is about the importance of unpopular ideas. That is Dr. King. Dr. King teaches us about the importance of thinking independently with great moral sensitivity, of being willing to take big risks in the name of truth. We celebrate King so easily today because his truth has now become mainstream. But if we are not asking ourselves what we personally can do in service of the truths that we hold dear, are we really honoring his legacy? In that vein, I invite us all to think about Dr. King's birthday as a day on rather than a day off. You are invited, as Rabbi mentioned earlier in the service, to join our clergy and staff in a variety of hands-on projects around the community this weekend and early next week. You can also join us at a community celebration of Dr. King and his legacy this Sunday at 3 p.m. at the Westport Playhouse. You can join us if you're not free this weekend, the week after next, when we speak to the governor with our Connect friends, when we speak with our state legislators about many important justice initiatives that you can play a role in. Everyone here could play a role in. That meeting is on Thursday, January 30th. Please mark your calendars, and when you show up, tell them that I sent you. I'll get the credit. (laughs) The details for that are uh, in your email and will be publicized soon. And on your way out, you'll notice that I've put a stack of flyers on the table. If you want to learn more about it, I'm happy to schmooze with you about it at the Oneg. So, in summation... This year, when we hear words of truth that make us a little bit uncomfortable or that evoke a resistance in us toward change, we should remember that that sense of discomfort and agitation is a great part of Dr. King's legacy, too. In that 1967 speech, Dr. King called the war a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. An example, in his words, of what happens when, to quote him, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people. It seems clear that the essential tensions identified throughout the 1960s are still with us in 2020, albeit in different forms. Dr. King's legacy should remind us to recommit ourselves to his work. The time is now. We have an opportunity. 
I am endlessly thinking about the reason that we forget Dr. King's anti-Vietnam stance. And I think one significant reason is because he struck a more cynical tone toward the end of his life there than we like to imagine of any hero. It's really unfortunate for so many reasons, the timing, because he gave that speech the year before the Tet Offensive, which was really when American public opinion started to change in a big way toward the war in 1968, and he was murdered just a few months after that. And so the last memory that Martin Luther King left is of this very unpopular point of view that later, of course, became mainstream and even taken for granted. He was cynical in those last days. We like to think of him as a dreamer. We like to remember his speech. We should remember his speech. But I don't want to, us to think that just because he was cynical in that grave American moment that he lost the dream or that he would want us to lose the dream. He was so strategic in the short term. He got things done. He built amazing coalitions. And somehow he was able to maintain both the sense of the pragmatic and of the ideal Maintain the focus on the immediate legislative victory while also dreaming of a hopeful future. He was a great leader, a prophet even, but in the end, also a human being, just a man. The sheer scale of the task should not distract us from the task. That's what I learned from Dr. King, or in his own far more poetic words, in faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. Shabbat shalom.